This time, Louis van Gaal's Ajax, Europe's coolest ever team. Welcome to By Far The Greatest Team, a podcast in which football fans attempt the impossible, trawling through history to decide just who is the greatest team of all time. My name's Graham Dunn. This might genuinely finally be an Oxford United free podcast. And joining me as ever is the king of data, it's Jamie Rooney. Louis van Gaal's army. Louis van Gaal's army. Do you hear the fans? (laughs) You are the king of data. You know this stuff. And of course, you would be able to, I'm sure, regale with me with um uh where does louis van gaal or van Gaal? where does he rank among man united's most successful managers of the past 40 years <laughs> as we're about to find out louis van Gaal, louis van gaal um, another brilliant pronunciation classic for us has uh, managed quite a few clubs and he's managed to win league championships with every single club he's managed including az alkmaar apart from one and can you guess what that one club is where he failed to win a league championship? <laughs> I would literally rank him between David Moyes and Jose Mourinho, because that's exactly where he stood. The uh, website I looked at, which admittedly didn't look very uh, professional, did sort of indicate that David Moyes might have had a, a higher win ratio, which would be quite frightening. But we don't want to dwell on such a, a dubious period. We're bringing back a guest who has generally focused on on not necessarily the greatest team. Welcome back, Shane Giuliano. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me on for the third time. Third time of asking. When you've been on before, Shane, we have tended to focus on maybe some of the... You know, I don't know. I don't know if it's fair to call the Australia team an underachiever, but it's certainly fair to call Zaire, 1974, uh, arguably not one of the world's best. Yeah, but my goodness, weren't they entertaining? I mean, those <laughs> stories were fabulous. And then you threw Marseille after it, which was just a joy to listen to the corruption that went on there. They're fabulous teams to talk about. Before we get stuck into tonight's side, and it is an absolutely fantastic one. Last week, of course, we did Fulham and uh, the amazing Europa League, to get my correct uh, terminology, a cup run under Roy Hodgson. And one of the things that came up, and we get we tossed you with a bit of homework, didn't we, Jamie, in terms of, unusually, in every season, Roy Hodgson's Fulham scored exactly the same, almost exactly the same number of goal, uh, goals, 38. 38 and 39 something like that and we wondered if this was a thing so jamie is this is this a thing unfortunately the idea of it was far more exciting than the the reality of the stats but it is a thing for roy hodgson so just to kind of give you the data on those two seasons with fulham he's he's pretty much averaging one goal a game for and almost one goal a game against and that's pretty consistent in his time at Fulham. 
His career statistics is 1.4 goals per game and 1.1 against. And he generally keeps that theme with a few blips when he's in Scandinavia. In Sweden with Malmo, he jumps into the giddy heights of 2.2 and 2.3 goals per game when he's winning championships. And also one of his first seasons at Holmstad as well, it's 2.2. But yeah, Roy Hodgson, I think, is fairly consistent in trying to level up the amount of goals to games that he p- performs in as his teams. But um, I couldn't help but kind of draw some conclusions between another great manager of ours that we love to kind of bring into these podcasts, Claudio Ranieri. And it turns out they're pretty much identical in terms of their career statistics. So Roy Hodgson, 1.4 goals per game over all of his, his games. Claudio Ranieri, 1.5. Roy Hodgson, 1.1 goals against per game. Claudio Ranieri, 1.1. So, and if you want to do an extreme and compare that against Guardiola, Guardiola's 2.5 goals per game he's managed against 0.8. So you can see there are differences, but not a lot of difference between Claudio Ranieri and Roy Hodgson. You could also do a comparison of Ranieri v Hodgson's cities visited in managerial career too, because both of them have been absolutely everywhere. It's an opportunity for a quiz question, Graham, isn't it? It definitely, it definitely is. I can't answer this because I do know the answer to this. But, but the question, of course, is out of those two managers, Ranieri or Hodgson, if you had to put your kind of life savings, Shane, which of those two do you think has managed more teams the i can give you one tiny bit of information which is a a a reasonable piece of information that ranieri's when he when he managed leicester that was his 17th club i don't know if that helps or not i reckon hodgson actually i'll take a punt at hodgson i reckon hodgson's clocked in silly amounts of teams uh by the way are we counting going back to teams as that or completely separate teams Going back, they can. Yeah. So, going back is- oh, Hodgson, I'm going with Hodgson. He's 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 gone everywhere. Is that your final answer? Go on, Jamie. Shane, I'm I'm having a dip at Hodgson. I'm I'm taking my punt at Hodgson on this. Well, I can tell you that when Claudio Ranieri returned to Calgary for the second time, it was his 22nd managerial post. Oh my goodness! And when gracious Hodgson me. returned to Crystal Palace for the second time, it was his 23rd managerial post. Roy Hodgson. God bless you, Roy. You made up for that one year at Liverpool that didn't quite work as a Liverpool fan. Yeah, didn't even make a year there, did he? (laughs) No, he did not. In his his defence, there were dark days at Liverpool and I think it was a pretty tough gig. We obviously had this fact that Roy Hodgson, 38 goals for Fulham, uh, and that would be a 38-game season. The team we're going to talk about tonight, uh, Ajax, this isn't uh, in in the era, this is um, in uh, Johan Cruyff's first season in charge, 85-86, 34-game season. They, by comparison, scored just the 120 goals. <laughs> and they didn't win the league. So, I mean, this is one for you, Jamie, at some point. They finished with a goal difference of plus 85, and they still finished eight points behind PSV. <laughs> That's awesome. So this would have been the PSV that would have gone on and won the Champions League as well, wouldn't it, in the yeah. late 80s? So. The other sort of carryover we had from the Fulham podcast, which is sort of relevant to tonight, is kind of unbeknown to <laughs> any of us, even Stu, who was on the pod <laughs> kind of representing Fulham, was that Yari Littmanen, uh, Roy Hodgson signed him for Fulham in that desperate attempt to... Um, 
to stay up, which they somehow successfully did. I don't think Lippmann actually even played. I mean, he was obviously quite played by injuries. But it's interesting. I think if you were to ask any of us here, we we all think Lippmann is an absolute hero at a player. I mean, Shane, he was at, at Liverpool for a couple of oh. years or so. Great memories oh, there. I loved you. him. Uh, one of the reasons I actually went off Gerard Houllier was Yari Lippmann because when he signed him, I thought, you're a genius. When he didn't play him, I went, well, you're an idiot. So it went from genius to idiot quite quickly. And he also did a quote, one of my absolute favourite quotes by a football manager. After he signed him and when he went to get rid of him, they were asking why you'd get rid of what was once one of the best attacking midfielders in the world. He goes, he was a bit too good for us. And I remember (laughs) hearing that going, I don't think you should manage anyone again. If that's your quote, sir, <laughs> he legitimately was better than everyone else on the pitch. He was le- legitimately so much better. He was putting passes to areas that he just thought players had run in, and they just looked at him quizzically going, I'm sorry, did you want me to go there? And he was looking at them back going, well, where else were you going to go? And he was literally playing around for fun because he was clearly so much more talented brain-wise than almost everyone we had. He was just a bit, when we had him at 30, and I think he probably was even earlier in his career, he was just slow. So he's one of those guys whereby he didn't have a lot of speed, but he's on the ball, he was ridiculously talented. And and Jamie, uh, I know you're a big fan of his. Through the Ajax team that we're going to talk about, yeah, I love Lippmann, he's a number 10. He actually came in, as we're going to find out, he came in to replace uh, Dennis Burkan, who had moved on to Inter Milan. I would have thought Lippmann was your kind of player, as um, his uh, such was his reputation for getting injured. He had, had the nickname Man of Glass by the end of it. His record wasn't terrible at Ajax, but as soon as he went to Barca on the free yeah. transfer, the wheels fell off. And that's why Barca got rid of him too, because they just went, well, there's no point. You cost yeah. too much money on a salary. Liverpool got him. He got injured a lot. We didn't play him. And then he just... He never played really after that. He really just had his Ajax years and then it just all fell apart for him. So let's get stuck into this Ajax side. This is an unbelievable era and an unbelievable team. I mean, Jamie, we were talking about this beforehand, weren't we, Jamie? That We've done a few teams lately where you've had one or two star players. In fact, we had, uh, you know, Napoli is a prime example. We did Napoli and they weren't quite a one-man team, but I mean, such was Maradona's, <laughs> such was his impact. But also actually the rest of the team was relatively non-stellarist and, and certainly what it went on to do. But I think if you look at this team, it is difficult to imagine a better or more showbiz starting eleven. It's the Dutch national team for 15 years. Even in 1990-91, they had half the Dutch national team in there that ended up leaving. I mean, at one stage or another, 15 years of Dutch internationals went through Ajax. It's quite freaky. It's a heck of a team. It really is an absolute glossary of superstars. I mean, to contextualise it, if we we just break down the 94-95 season, which we're going to focus on as where we judge the greatness of this team, players that would have featured in 18 games or more, there's 15 players. Of those 15 players... All but, I think, one, which is Van Vossen, will go on and play at one of Europe's biggest clubs, Barcelona, AC Milan, Juventus, Manchester United. It's just staggering, the the talent. And a lot of this talent came through the youth system. And it came through the youth system with the, the coach 
as well, Louis van Gaal, who started his time at Ajax as the youth team coach. How does this era begin? I mean, is there sort of credit in the bank before he takes over or, you know, is it him? It's Ajax. We don't need to explain who Ajax are and what their history is. They are one of the most successful mm. football teams in, in European football. Van Gaal takes over from Leo Beenhacker in 91. Prior to that, uh, Ajax had been winning championships as they, they do, but they had been competing with their rivals, Fernod and also PS, PSV, who were a pretty tasty team back then. But when Van Gaal takes over in, in 91, it really is um, almost success from the start. He goes on to win Eredivisie. He also wins the UEFA Cup in 1993, beating Roma in the final. And he's just on collision course for um, incredible riches and success with this this bunch of players that he's kind of been able to fortunately assemble on the cheap as well. The budget of this club is ridiculously low, not just how they put it together. The sums of money the players are getting per week. You know, Edgar Davids and Clara Seifdor were on less than £1,000 per week playing in this Ajax team when they're winning the Champions League. It's, it's staggering. 1990-91, they lost four internationals, as in four internationals left in the next two years, and they replaced mm. them with kids who happened to be, funnily enough, internationals, or they ended up being internationals for years. But, I mean, you know, they lost Richard Vichka, Aaron Vinter, Bergkamp, and Vim York, and they were internationals. Yeah, and they're pretty good internationals. So you're sitting there, you know, you've basically gutted four of your starting eleven. And then you just sit there and replace him with kids who happen to be superstars. It's quite remarkable to, to be able to put a team together like this. And this is Van Hal's first first job, isn't it? It's his first job in management as well. I mean, he obviously comes through the system, but that's his first senior management job, isn't it? Absolutely that. When he takes over in 91, he's been the assistant to Bean Hacker. He's been at the youth team level. But yeah, this is his first experience as a first team coach. As Shane says, it starts off with that loss of players actually to the idea of trying to come to terms of, of a team without Burkamp is, you know, that would destroy it, you know, almost any side. I mean, teams you would build, there's no, there's no one who wouldn't build a team around Dennis Burkamp, is there? What, what's the style that he played? What did he really introduce in 91? As in, what was the formation and the setup to, to get him forward with all those right. superstars and kids? They employ the classic 3-4-3, which is used quite heavily in Dutch football and has been for some time. He becomes obsessed with with space. Um, I think that's just a Dutch cultural thing. I mean, it's a tiny country, yet they seem to cram so much in it. They use space exceptionally well. And his, his, he's obsessed with possession as well. And I mean, there's a brilliant Dutch documentary about the, 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 the Champions League winning side. And it's just a cutaway. And you hear... Van Gaal going absolutely crazy at his players, like, just just t- touch it once, just touch it once. Why would you take the risk? And it's just genius. that, that That's the mentality. It's like he's drilling into his players. And there's another clip, it's brilliant, where somebody's played a long ball when they had a, a pass that they could have played to a, a, yeah, a teammate a good few, <laughs> few metres away. And he's going ballistic. Why would you knock it long? It's insane. It's crazy. When the players weren't there, why would you do that? So I think it's that kind of hard-nosed kind of insanity that he has to drive his team forward where compressing space, using it to his big advantage, pushing the opposition into their own half and effectively keeping the ball. It's very similar to what we see with Pep's Guardiola and what we've seen with um, Klopp's uh, Gagan press in the, in the last few years. And Van Gaal was doing that before these boys were uh, even thinking about becoming coaches. And I suppose if you're going to do it anywhere, the heritage of Ajax and 
you know the total football there. It, I suppose that is an area. <laughs> it is a club which which is renowned, you know, renowned both for for the production of of, uh, of youth players and our kind kind of football philosophies. So if you're going to achieve it anywhere, it's sort of logical that you'd you'd manage it there. And and it is a young side that that emerges. Six of the key players in this key team come through the, the youth system. <laughs> I mean, when you look at it, Edwin van der Sar, uh, one of the greatest goalkeepers of all the time. Michael Reisinger, who goes on and has a, a great career at Milan, and well, not so great at Milan, but definitely at Barcelona. You've got the De Boer <laughs> twins. I can never tell which is which. Ron went to Rangers, didn't he? They both went to Rangers. Did Frank go to Rangers as well? I knew Ronald de Boer went to Rangers. Yeah, they both had a spell at Rangers. It's amazing they both had a spell at Crystal Palace. I think maybe they were thinking we're not going down that road again. And then you've got, I mean, two of the, the greatest midfielders of all time, Clarence Seedorf and Edgar Davids, who have also come through the, uh, the youth ranks. And Patrick Clivert. He also came through the youth system, famously 18 years yeah. old in the, uh, in the final versus Milan. And they dragged Frank Reichardt back as well, didn't they, for his, his last run? How significant is Reichardt's return to this? I mean, he's had his amazing career you think about the, the, the Dutch national side at, at, at European and he's had Rudy Vollas spit at him he's had sort of everything unbelievable career you know with that youth that youth team that did need a couple of cool heads in there didn't they well I thought they did because of who they lost as well Aaron Vintour and Vim Yonk were two midfielders and they were both Dutch internationals. You're losing that out of your midfield, that's going to hurt a hell of a lot. You throw a couple of kids in there, you're going to need someone who's a level head. Reichard next to with, with one of my favourites, Danny Blind, is the two old guys in the mm. team. They're both full internationals by the time they've done that. But Danny and um, Frank Reichard in the middle, at least you know that in a game whereby you lose everyone's losing their heads around them. Those two won't. And they've been there and done that and they've seen absolutely everything. So they're absolutely brilliant bringing him back. Clever move. Clever move when you've got kids. You do need a couple of wise heads in the team. And and Van Howe absolutely is aware of that. And I think, right, go back to your question, Graham, I think it's absolutely significant right card in the team. And as Shane's already mentioned, playing with uh, Danny Blint, what Van Howe does is he allows, he pushes right card into midfield to allow him to play three at the back, uh, generally with Danny Blim, the, the single centre-back. Rijkaard pushes into midfield, so he allows Seedorf and Davids to just do their buzzing around. He allows the wide players like Overmars or Philippe George, as it would have been, to stay wide and attack and push their full-backs back. But what he does when they're playing against fairly decent teams or when they're out of possession, Rijkaard just sits in. An experienced campaigner that's able to kind of sit back in with Danny Blim and form a back four and make Ajax a bit more solid when they're playing against teams that can impress them. The record of this team is unbelievable when we get to 1995. But of course, the Eredivisie, the, the Dutch National League, it, I talk about Johan Cruyff's t- uh, team getting 120 goals, but of course, there is the theory that for every goal in the Premier League or Serie A, counts about seven in uh, the Eredivisie. So, I mean... Is that a fair criticism? Is that a kind of... Uh, I mean, obviously, anyone who watched Ben Vekhorst for uh, Man United last year might think that's a reasonable uh, summary, but... Matai Kinsman as a perfect <laughs> example of why that's 7-1. to one. He's always my favourite. Matai Kinsman comes over and he's just absolutely car crash. <laughs> Having said that, though, there's some pretty good players like 
Kanu's in that team as well, and he was pretty handy when he came over. There's been a lot of Dutch players that have come over and been very successful in the Premier League at probably not quite the same clip as they were in Holland, but they're pretty good anyway. So I would say 7-1, to one, but I'd, I'd go with a 2-1 to one ratio. A nod to one of our amazing guests, Phil Craig. He'll probably also confirm that the Dutch league is slightly easier to score goals when they, they signed Josie Altidore from AZ Altmar. Or as um, I think Phil coined him as Dozy cannot score or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the higher echelons of the league, there are good sides there. I mean, PSV, as we've, um, we've talked about, are there 90, and it doesn't, for all the players, they've got fine order, a decent side there. It's not like there's an immediate immediate translation into into success for Van Hall. Generally, it's 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 Ajax, PSV, or Feyenoord, Ajax's uh, great great rivals. But this is a period where PSV were and had a fantastic team. Uh, it's the, you know the team that came through where, where Ruud Hullet was at that particular moment, I think, as well. But it's, it's that transition, I think. It's the, the fact that you've got a young coach in Van Howe, hungry with this desire. He knows what's coming through the youth system to the point where in the, I think it was in the early 90s that they were scouting, their scouting network, Ajax's scouting network in Brazil, were pretty far down the road in signing uh, Ronaldo. Some call him the real Ronaldo, the Brazilian Ronaldo. Some call him the fat Ronaldo. I think that's a bit unfair, to be honest. But a brilliant, brilliant player. So Ajax were in the in the marketplace. But I think it's the relationship that Phillips had, whatever commercial relationship they had inside Brazil at that moment, was able to swing the deal that Ronaldo went to PSV. But Van Gaal looks back on that now, and he's he was really relaxed about it because he knew he had Patrick Cliver coming through the ranks. So they missed out on this young kid in Brazil, who's a hot, hot kind of prospect but they've got their own hot prospect in Patrick Kluivert just waiting to come in, and Van Howe would be proved um, correct on that, although some Newcastle fans may disagree. It's in 93-94 that they win their first Eredivisie. That one is you know, quite a, a sort of normal record, I think, of six defeats, two, two draws. You know, they're, they're, they're just, um, you know, I think they finished a couple of points ahead of a Feyenoord in that one. Is is this sort of clear what is about to happen from winning just you know by two three points to <laughs> complete dominance? So that that feels like you know it's not through signings. It's it's probably the project coming together. Van Gaal is as part of his style, as part of his training techniques, is is known for doing rehearsed drills and repetition. A bit similar to Roy Hodgson we talked about with Fulham last week. Slightly different outcomes from the two managers, but very different personalities if we were to, you know, compare them. I mean, Van Howe is a very strong, vocal, angry man most of the time, you know, with a full dossier seemingly in his left hand all of the time. It's almost like he can't leave the house. You know, most of us can't leave the house without our phone or our keys. I imagine Louis Van Gaal can't leave his house without his phone, his keys and his dossier in his left hand. To add credence to the argument of just another year in the legs, 93-94, the ages of some of the best players they've got, you know, the De Boer boys are 24, Sadoff's 18, Davids is 21, Lippmann's 23, Overmars is 21, Finiti George is 23, Kanu's 17, Clivert's 17, 
just putting an extra season of of uh, Eredivisie under these guys would have done it. Would have done them an absolute world of good. It is quite incredible, and their record in that season is unbelievable. So they they go through the season completely undefeated in the in the Eredivisie. Twenty seven wins out of thirty four. So just the seven draws. 106 goals, still shy of um, the goal difference of Johan Cruyff, so I noticed that they're a mere plus 78. But, I mean, it's just an extraordinary, uh, extraordinary run. They, uh, you know, they win, they win title by seven points from uh, from um, Rhoda, a team I'm not particularly familiar with, but, um, you know, they absolutely trounce Eindhoven and uh, Feyenoord, who are, you know, 15, 18 points behind. And it's still two points in the Eredivisie at that point, at the moment, it's still two points for a win. They hadn't made the transition like most of football to three points mm. for the win. It, it is an incredible, incredible performance, uh, that one. And like I say, the, the, the point we're sort of making at, at the top of the pod, it really feels like this is a complete story. It's difficult to pick one player who 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 was driving this? This is this is very much a team performance, isn't it? It's a ridiculously talented team performance too. I mean, there's just talent to burn everywhere. I think this is where the drills have come in. This is where Van Hal is because Van Hal has a reputation for delegating in players with clear, defined responsibilities. And I think that extra year, once they get they gain the belief of winning the Dutch Championship. They go into the following season with another year under the belt with Van Hal's methods. They're a year wiser and older, but they've also got the confidence that they can win in their own backyard so they can go and win in European competitions. And they kick off the Champions League with a game against the defending champions, AC Milan. And AC Milan had been in the last two Champions League finals. Uh, we know about one of them because we talked about Marseille winning in 93 with Shane not so long ago. And that incredible story. And then win the Champions League the, the following season. So Ajax go into their first Champions League campaign um, under Van Howe with a home game against AC Milan, the defending champions. And of course, that's the the other part of this story is, and and the one that probably translates. So when we talk about the uh, the, the seven goals for for each one, it's difficult to make the same argument when it comes to the Champions League. And this side not only goes through the entire uh, Eredivisie season undefeated; it goes through uh, the entire Champions League season undefeated. And as you say. It's not a straightforward draw, is it? No, they've got Milan in the group. They've got the wonderfully named team Casino Salzburg and AEK Athens. And the Athens game is quite interesting because in the group stage, they actually they go to Athens quite uh, late in the summer. But still, anyone who's been to Greece in, in September will know that it's still ridiculously hot. And they go behind, and it's kind of the test of their character. They're away in Athens, who weren't a bad team at the time, and they're in you know, incredible hot conditions. And then something, something that's also come from the playbook, Frank De Boer, um, a wonderful, creative defender, played at centre-back or uh, left of centre-back. Uh, he, had, he had this amazing talent for just almost like a golfer, chip shots, but chip shots from one end of the pitch to the other. And in that AEK game, he, he, he kind of chips one in for Littmanon, who uh, is one of our favourite players, as we've established, who then 
draws level and then they go on to win the game. And De Boer afterwards is just saying, well, I used to do that for Bergkamp all the time. So it's something I'm used to. Again, we're getting back into that kind of familiarity of drills, drills, drills. And most famously, you've probably seen the goal against Argentina for the Netherlands in the World Cup in 98. One of the greatest goals of all time, Dennis Bergkamp. And uh, that comes from a wonderful De Boer chip. And if you haven't listened to the Dutch commentary of that goal on YouTube, then I strongly urge you to... As soon as you've finished listening to this episode of the podcast, I strongly urge you to go and, uh, and, and listen to it because it's some of the greatest football commentary you will ever hear. If, if you ever wanted to hear a, uh, a football commentator almost orgasm in his own pants, this is the commentary where that, I think, happens. Certainly, if you want to hear the word Dennis Burkamp, or the name Dennis Burkamp, repeated seven different times at a repeated level of excitement, in consecutive consecutively, that is the place to go to. Danish Burkham! Danish Burkham! Danish That's a really bad impression, Graham, but that's kind of the commentary where you will you'll get a flavour of. Yeah, I mean in fairness, we did plan to drop find a way of dropping that into the podcast, uh, but that, that's a bit too challenging. So we had to put up with with Jamie's best impressions. The De Boer boys actually scored in the Champions League. Both of them scored two goals, which for Frank De Boer, that's not too bad from a defender. Yeah, he scored a brilliant free kick as well and very confident. So again, that he practiced on a regular basis. You know, it's hugely impressive in the in the group stage. As you say, they're, they're in a group with Milan. <laughs> they topped the group. Um, so they win both games against Milan. They did. They played, They won both games. They, they, only yeah. drew, they, they drew against Salzburg. <laughs> they, had, they had amazing difficulty against Salzburg. <laughs> The Milan away game is actually played in Trest. It's not played at the San Siro. UEFA sanctions were in play at the time, so uh, Milan had to travel. But I think even if it was played in the San Siro, this Ajax team would have given them a, given them a pretty tight game. Franco Baresi own goal, a uh, very rare thing. Can't give them the second goal to win it. And it's enough for them to top the group, which, you know, again, it sort of points to... Uh, the quality of of this time all uh, this team all the way through it. They knock out hijack split in the uh, quarterfinals and take Bayern to the cleaners in the second leg of the semi final. Uh, crazily good performance to set up a a Champions League final appearance against our old friends Milan again <laughs> for the third time. Just going back to the semi-final against Bayern where they win 5-2, there's a, there is quite a key moment in that game. Bayern get a penalty as their second goal. And it's given because Danny Blind hambles in, in the box. And it, it looks like a delivery. It looks like he's pulling a Brian Robson. So shame we, we talked West Brom a couple of weeks ago. And Brian Robson against Liverpool at Anfield uh, made this incredible kind of left-handed save when he was an outfield player. Danny Blind is not as spectacular that, but it's definitely... Uh, his motion towards saving it. The referee of the night was Sander Pohl. And this is a semi-final. If, if Blin gets sent off, he misses the final. And for whatever reason, and I don't think Sander Pohl's been able to come out and say what his thinking was, but he doesn't send Danny Blin off. And therefore, he gets a pathway into the final. And it's just one of those moments where it feels to me a referee has kind of understood the emotion of an occasion. And maybe probably not understood the rules specifically, <laughs> but he's used his judgment because there's enough in Danny Blint's handling of the ball to say maybe it wasn't deliberate and maybe there is doubt. And yes, it's a penalty, but 
can I send a player off for whatever reason? But it's quite nice that well, the referees can make those decisions, it, um, emotional decisions in the game. Well, I saw, I actually watched that on YouTube in preparation for this, and I do believe that Danny Blinn sends said referee a rather large gift basket once a Christmas. Because <laughs> there is absolutely no doubting. I watched him off, off, <laughs> off. Not quite as obvious as, say, I don't know, Luis Suarez with his handball in, I think it was the World Cup. Not quite that obvious. But I did look at it and go, mm, no, I think that looked like it was sent offable. Definitely so. And yeah, yeah, as you say, you have those moments which are the, are kind of decisive. Uh, you know, fate comes comes to play what uh, a hand in it, I guess, and and it sets up the uh, the final. And Graham, I, I feel sorry to over talky there. There's there's another thing that happens in that Bayern Munich semi final. I don't know if you guys mm. have had the chance to see it. The halftime entertainment is incredibly interesting. Andre Rief, I think it's Rief. The uh, oh, he does the, a violin, doesn't he? He does a violin. He plays the violin to the crowd at half time. That is the half time entertainment, and the crowd absolutely get behind it and start humming away to it. And the whole crowd are humming away to Andre Rief, who's there on his violin at the half time uh, half time Super Bowl interval. How come this happened? <laughs> This shame. I've no idea, but I just remember I knew about it because, it, ironically, I believe my wife was watching Andre Rio and they popped it up as an actual reference during a concert when there was like commentary in the background. And I'm like, well, I didn't know that for an actual story, and it's still stuck in my head because I'm like, well, that's that's nothing that I would have heard of at a football game previously. Rioting, yes, and apparently you can turn the lights off in a Champions League final. And you can bury money in the backyard of an auntie's house. But the violin at halftime, that was way outside of what I expected. It's a touch of class, isn't it? That's genuine. It is, it's classy. Class. It's, it's different. He's done it the, a few times. I mean, I would have expected more, you know, perhaps the scorpion singing, you know, rocky like a hurricane. But, you know, if you're in, you know, doing something German, but no, let's do that. Just as a, a tiny. Um, uh, a distraction. I, I didn't get. I didn't men- get a chance to mention this in the uh, last uh, or two weeks ago podcast when we were talking about West Bromwich Albion and the great man motivator that is Ron Atkinson. But uh, I, I heard Dean Saunders once tell a story when he was at um, Aston Villa and Ron Atkinson was um, in uh, in charge, and there was a half. T- <laughs> apparently. One half time TJ it wasn't going great in the first half. And at half time they had Rene from Rene and Renata. Who, you know the novelty nineteen eighties kind of novelty. Save your love, my darling. Save your love. Save your love, my darling. Yeah, exactly. So the Rene and Renata from Rene and Renata, who but this is how Dean Saunders told this story. Uh, and he I think he I think he's relatively local. It might surprise you to learn that he maybe isn't. <laughs> um as Latin as he might have. I don't, I don't know about that. So Ron Atkinson got him in at half time. Flyers <laughs> just told him to sit down. And and Renee from Renee and Renata sang uh, Nessun Dorma at full blast in the changing room. <laughs> and, and this was the team talking at the end of it. Ron Atkinson, when he finished, Ron Atkinson just said, That's what you call passion. Get out there. And that was, that was the team talk. <laughs> 
<laughs> so that's halftime entertainment. That is brilliant. That's come out of the kit bag, that one. That's excellent. <laughs> I knew we could get something massively quirky into this extremely talented <laughs> discussion about the, the, the Ajax team. I knew we could pull out some story that made me, made me go, there we go. There's the weirdness that I've been looking for. Shane, as I knew you were coming on, and I knew oh, the team brilliant. didn't me. have the biggest scandals going on, yet I think there is an opportunity to get you involved in a scandal. Part of this incredible Ajax winning team was a defender who only played, I think, in about 50, 55% of the matches for Ajax. A youngster I love this man. I know one of my favourite stories when I first came over. Love it. I was so happy with him at Chelsea. What he did at Chelsea, magic. The man was magic. Just for those who are listening that may not be aware of uh, Winston Bogart's amazing enterprise. <laughs> he had a the, – the, the part I love, he didn't even negotiate his own salary. He was so surprised by the amount of money Chelsea were paying him. Like He was shocked. When that transfer went through, he went, you're paying me what? I didn't negotiate this. This is excellent. So that when they didn't claim, he's like, fine, I'll take all the money you give me. I'll never earn this again. I am staying here. They put him in the under-17s. They put him everywhere. I believe he was a car park attendant by the end. It was excellent, and he still wouldn't move. You couldn't move him under any circumstances. It was gold. What was he doing? He lived in Holland at the time, I think, dealing with a nightclub. Fabulous man. Gianluca Viali signed him, put him on a ridiculous contract, as you mentioned. Viali was sacked less than two weeks later, and yeah, he came in and thought, I don't fancy him. Just wanted to get rid of him. So what Pogart did, the rumour has it, was running his nightclub in Amsterdam whilst getting paid £40,000 a week by Chelsea Football Club for a four-year period. Apparently, he used to fly back for training. <laughs> Literally, he used to. He got to a point whereby he knew he wasn't going to be selected at the end, and he'd just fly back for the training so that he could make sure he fulfilled his contract. That's a man I that I admire. <laughs> to be fair, Winston Bogard before then, he was a Dutch international. He wasn't a bad player. I remember watching because I used to watch a lot of Spanish football when I first got into football in the late nineties and two thousands, and it's when. Van Gaal literally took the entirety of Holland over to play for Barcelona. Both both Ajax and PSV Eindhoven teams but merged into one. And it worked, I think, for the first year he was there in 97 or 98. I believe Barca won the title. And then it went downhill quite spectacularly as a lot of the guys started to be you know, garbage. And Bogard was one of those guys that was amazingly garbage. Before then, he was full Dutch international and centre-back. But he, he lost his way at Barca. Chelsea bought him and he went, thanks for coming. I'll take the retirement fund. Uh-huh. Comfortably one of my favourite players, just based on the story. Nothing to do with football ability. That is a man that I like. Uh, uh, and Winston Bogart's uh, contribution is probably a man most known for his his lack of game time and his um, uh, being <laughs> one of the worst uh, signings, if not the worst signing, purely based on a m- money versus um, performance versus outlay. Because, of course, they don't, they just release him at the end. And, Jamie, where does he go to after 
His Chelsea days are finished. I think at some point he, he gets back to Ajax, but he, I don't think he ever plays again. I, I think he probably goes as a you know a full t- full time nightclub owner. I don't think Winston Bogart does actually play football again. I would have to rely on brilliance of Wikipedia to help me with that one. I see no sign of any further appearances from him. So it is an incredible drop off for something that isn't obviously injury based. And, and ironically, in in ninety five, ninety six, when they came runner up, he made the equal most appearances for Ajax. Yeah, he played in the in the ninety five, ninety six Champions League final that Ajax went on to try to defend their, their their trophy but lost out to Juventus on penalty kicks. He plays in that final. I think he almost plays every game. As I said, he's got the equal most appearances to Van der Sar. You know, I feel we're drifting, but let's get back to the key point. So I can confirm that um, uh, Rene and Renata, Renata, it, it's not Rene, it's actually Renata. Renato is the... Um, uh, is is the bloke, and he uh, is from the West Midlands. And Wikipedia certainly thinks that that story is correct, and that he does sing this and all at half time at a very poor. Which either means one of two things: that either it happened, or I have edited the Renee and Renata a Wikipedia page, which is equally possible as well. But um, <laughs> to to move back to probably uh, even more relevant stuff. This final is set up. It's an amazing game. And it's set up for some elements of, of fate, particularly Frank Reichardt, isn't it? I mean, there's this... I, I always find it interesting how many times you kind of... Those those stories which appear to be made, you know, set in, in fate, decided are going to happen, don't happen. And we had one the other week. We were talking about Fulham playing Hamburg in the semi-final of the uh, Europa League. And the, and the final was it in Hamburg. And if you're a Hamburg fan... And you've got to the semi-final, and you're and in the nicest possible way, you're only playing Fulham. If you can't, this is happening. We are. It's destiny that we're going to we're going to play that <laughs> final, and it doesn't happen. But this, but this one, if you were going to write the Frank Reichardt script, it is what? What should my last game in football be? It's absolutely fairy tale stuff, and there's a couple of key things that go on with Frank Frank. Frank. Reichard in this game at halftime when it's nil-nil Van Hal in in the spirit of Ron Atkinson doesn't bring in uh, Renata uh, from Rene or Rene Renata but he does hand over to Frank Reichard and allow Frank Reichard to sing his own version of Nessendorma to the Ajax faithful to inspire them and you know lace with emotion who knows what he was going through uh, in order to inspire his team on but whatever he was able to say it did resonate because obviously they go on and they they, they snatch it with the club at goal which we should talk about as well but there's a there's an image of Rijkaard from a camera from the side that catches him when they've won the trophy and they've won the, the Champions League for Ajax the, the sheer joy and emotion in him is incredible I mean here's a man who would have probably been willing to give anything for that one last hurrah with his, you know, his 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 local team, uh, almost his last game ever against his former employers, where he's had incredible success. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful, wonderful story. And unlike Alan Shearer, who celebrated Blackburn winning the championship by painting a fence, Rijkaard celebrated by going and starting his own underwear company. Sorry, go back to go back. Yeah, to yeah, Alan I'm Shearer sure I should go back there. Please. Yeah, Nothing against Frank Reichardt, who I've got the utmost respect for. But frankly, I, I, I want to hear about the painting offence. Well, I stand to be corrected, and I'm very open to that. But I, I 
heard quotes or read quotes back in the mid 90s when Alan Shearer was asked, you know, when Blackburn won the, the Premier League in that incredible 1994-95 season, he, Alan Shearer was asked, how did you, how did you celebrate? Uh, to which she re- replied, I went home and I painted the garden fence. I mean, for me, that that sounds plausible and accurate for, you know, a, a man of sheer stature. Surprised he didn't go to Winston Bogard's nightclub. Anyway, he can't have everything. It's a landmark occasion for Rykon, but it's also uh, a kind of, a, I guess it's the announcement of the arrival of, uh, of Clive, isn't it? It sounds like it's the announcement of a lot of them, to be fair. I mean, even <laughs> Overmars is another one. He's one of my favourite players of all time, Mark Overmars, as a winger. My God, the Flying Dutchman was pretty special. He'd only been on for a short time, hadn't he, in the final? Clive, he was a super sub, wasn't he? Yeah, he, he came on for Lippenham. Uh, he was carrying a bit of injury. Van Howe actually changed his tactics slightly. He put both Clive and Carney up front, almost like a, um, a twin strike partnership. And, um, yeah, the Clivert's goal is fantastic because uh, I think it's a wonderful ball from Rijkaard that puts him in. What I love about that goal, bizarrely, is somebody absolutely can't stand defending, is Beresi. And uh, we all know where, where, where strikers have scored brilliant goals and they kind of rely on instinct. But defenders obviously rely on instinct as well. And I don't think it's... it's it, I encourage you to watch it. It's brilliant. The, the way that Beresi can see as the ball's going through to Cliver, exactly what's going to happen. He's anticipated. His instinct has kind of pushed him towards trying to get anything on the ball, but he's a microsecond too late. He's a microsecond too late because Cliver just kind of swings out a leg. I mean, I think he swings out his left left boot. Um, doesn't make clean contact with it, but makes enough contact with it that takes it past Rossi and goal. If that they've got Cliver coming off the bench is, is a sort of clue as to how strong that, that side is. Limonum, Who'd got? Uh, he was the second top scorer in the um, Champions League that year um, and got six. But you know, when you look across the across the season, uh, Cliver and um, Limonen with twenty odd goals each across across the year are the kind of top scorers. But there are goals across the team over Mars, Carno, the Dwarf brothers. It's it, that uh, that side is just it. It just has goals in them. It's got a lovely spread. I mean, even the yeah, even the the defenders with uh, Blind and De Boer get on the mm. and Rijkaard as a defender as your defensive players get on the score sheet. So it just shows that the danger is pretty much everywhere on the pitch. So ninety four ninety five is the is kind of the the peak. I mean, it, it's not like it falls off straight away. They win the league uh, uh, the following season, so you know strong again uh, and again and sort of quite comfortably there and and they do well in Europe again as well they do as defending champions they go all the way to the final where they meet another Italian um, heavyweight in Juventus that ends up as tight as it's possible to get doesn't it the um, it ultimately decided on penalties I mean we talk we, I mean, and we're going to talk about how this side disbands and some of the reasons specific reasons behind it but actually, they haven't lost too many in that season. It's broadly the same side, I think. Um, I think, is it, is it uh, Sadoff has gone by then? Sadoff goes in 96 on a, uh, a Bosman. He goes to um, Sampdoria. Edgar Davids goes in 96 to, to Milan. 
Uh, Michael Reisinger also goes in at 96 to, to Milan, as does Peter Van Vossen and Nwanku Kanu as well. So this is really the, the start of the band breaking up. And in the next two seasons, Van Howe has gone and pretty much all of the players that were in that incredible Ajax team, minus a couple, Edwin van der Sar, who doesn't move on till 99, to Juve, um, have, have moved on to... You say bigger and better things, but it's hard to be bigger than better than European champions undefeated in a whole season. And that, and how much of that is is the Bosman effect? Well, they lose four players on Bosman. Now, they, they're four players that they brought through the youth ranks, uh, in Reisinger, David Sedoff and Patrick Cliver. So they've spent nothing to get these players in, but they've invested incredible amounts of time and energy. Not just that, but... Let's not kid ourselves. That's four full internationals they've lost too. They haven't gone and lost someone you want out of contract. They've lost players that are worth a significant amount of money. They're all in their prime, young and fit. Yeah, and I just kind of demonstrate for- that as well. I mean, Edwin van der Sar wasn't one of the ones that moved on on the Bosman. He actually, they did get a fee for him. Edwin van der Sar goes on and plays in five Champions League finals. That's a record for a goalkeeper. The most uh, Champions League finals is, is, is six. The most European Cup finals is eight, Carla Modini. Clarence Seedorf plays in five Champions League finals. Edgar Davids plays in four Champions League finals. So these these are players that, if you'd have kept that spine together, you can't imagine exactly what brilliance Ajax would have gone on. You know, could they have gone back into Europe the following year and won it again? Could they have dominated Europe for a period of five or six years? If you compare this to the class of 92, just to get my Manchester United reference into this episode of the podcast. And Ferguson was able to bring, similarly, um, young players through that would go on to win championships and Champions Leagues. He was, Ferguson was able to hold them together. Ryan Giggs stays for the whole time and wins 13 championships. Paul Scholes wins 12 championships. Gary Neville, I think, has won something like 11 championships because he was able to keep them together. But obviously that wasn't happening in the Netherlands with Ajax Amsterdam. Van Howe himself was off to learn Spanish and enjoy some tapas in the uh, in the Catalonian capital of Barcelona. It's, it is worth, of course, um, saying for anyone who isn't familiar and hasn't been listening to our podcast on FC Liège from um, about a year or so ago now, uh, that the, the Bosman effect had happened. It had come in in, was it 95? It was 95. It took uh, Bonsman a, a few years. He started the proceedings in 91, but it took a few years to get that ruling through. It's probably the most abrupt impact, uh, possibly of um, beyond the, the effect on Bosman, as we know, <laughs> didn't really benefit from much of this himself personally. But it's probably the widest impact of of the Bosman, um, Bosman ruling. Actually, it's difficult to imagine a team quite so as affected as this. Oh, and crippling for the club too. I mean, how much transfer fees have you just lost after you've put that much investment in? That's absolutely crippling. Replacing them is impossible. I, I wouldn't hold too much sympathy for our Ajax these days. I mean, they did manage to get 90 million out of Manchester United for Anthony. So they've clearly learned <laughs> from their, their their time of being burnt under Bosman. <laughs> was Donny van der Beek also Ajax or was he somewhere else? <laughs> He did well with that one as well, and uh, yeah, Johnny uh, Vanderbeek was a joy. That worked well for you. I, I think if we just mm. use that as a small kind of case study, we can safely say that Ajax have learned from their their time of when they were uh, burned quite severely, losing players under the Bosman ruling. They've definitely uh, 
you know, that's evened itself out. The yin and yang is is one with one another. Obviously, Van Hal. So he um, he sticks around until ninety seven. Um, at that point, he gets poached. He goes to uh, uh, Barcelona. Van Hal's achieved an awful lot in football across the world. But is there a, a point at which, or a case to which, you could argue that it was never as good again? I think you can argue that case. I think. Um... Shane mentioned Van Hal does win the double with Barcelona in his first season. He does win championships at uh, Bayern Munich. But, I mean, almost anyone apart from Harry Kane is capable of winning a championship at Bayern Munich. So I, I do think that um, it, it's the sweetest moment for Louis Van Hal. But, I mean, his stock at this point is going to be riding high. And if he sees the glorious opportunities to go on and manage Europe's finest, which is exactly what he does. He goes on and manages some massive, massive football teams and you're pretty much securing your future at that point. And if we just look back to the budget of Ajax under Van Gaal and the salaries, there probably was a case for him to think, I could probably go and earn a bit more if I go to Spain and take the Barcelona job. In that second year in Barcelona, or the 98-99, his first full year, he's pulled in Reitziger, Bogard, De Boer, and Clivert. And when I say De Boer, I mean both. And that's the Ajax boys he, yeah. he brought in, but then he brought in like Philip Koku as well and Bourgeois and Zenden. So he pulled in two PSV boys as well. I think he keeps going after that too. And I'm like, mm, that's where it started to fall off. He lost a little bit of the Spanish heart. It seems really unlikely that a, a Dutch manager might have an over-reliance on, on bringing in Dutch footballers a uh, big name club. <laughs> Are we going to mention Donny van der Beek once more? <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty confident both won't make it through the edit. That would, that would be fine. We can't have two. <laughs> I just couldn't resist it. Just on the the final and what happens after the 94, 95, mm. we're pretty much familiar in, in England with the open top bus celebration it's you know become part of football folklore in England and adopted by many other nations around the world but in Amsterdam when the the team were coming back were flying back from Vienna after winning and being so victorious uh, in Vienna they their plane circles over Amsterdam where there are absolutely tens and hundreds of thousands of people waiting for the team to arrive and it banks to give all the players a view of what's awaiting for them there, which is pretty spectacular. But not only that, when they do arrive, they don't do the open top bus. They do the open canal trip where they parade the trophy around the canals. And what makes this even sweeter for me personally is by some ridiculous quirk of faith. I actually arrived in Amsterdam for the first time in my life, the moment they were parading the trophy, the European Cup. In Amsterdam, I was on a on a football tour at the time. Uh, the company we booked with had gone bust. We were stuck at Dover for about nine hours. We had to pull together money to pay for our own crossing. When we got to Amsterdam, there were no games arranged because the company had gone bust. But as we arrived, and this is before the days of mobile phone, so in '95, the, the coach was stuck to a halt because obviously it was just chaos in Amsterdam, and we had no idea what was going on because it was before the internet. 
and then we realised that they were parading the trophy. So it was like giddy, silly little boys at the time, loving football. We just jumped off and scattered to get a, a look of, of the trophy. No idea where the bus was. No idea where our hotel was. No idea if the company <laughs> even booked a hotel for us. Yeah, we were able, by some quirk of fate, be able to see the, the trophy being paraded. And we did find our way back to the bus and... Uh, the bus took us to our hostel, which wasn't as glamorous as the Amsterdam celebration around the canal. That is too good. I love the idea of the canal, uh, the canal celebration, and um, uh, I just is. would love to. I'd love to see Stuart McCall repeat his uh, his fantastic celebration for Bradford uh, City's Premiership party on that. His, <laughs> he, he quite gloriously falls off the car roof in quite a <laughs> drunken state. The the consequences would be far worse if you were. <laughs> <laughs> if you take the celebration at that level on a canal canal boat much more at stake <laughs> this is an incredible side and um we should probably get to thinking about uh ranking and rating this side and as ever uh, we have five glorious categories of greatness with uh, all-time greats at the top followed by true greats below that Touch great edge greatness and another one that there's no danger of any of those in the lower echelons being used this time. This is no Zaire. Um, Jamie, where where are you going to begin with this side? So I'm, I'm going to start by just giving you some numbers. So Shane's already mentioned about the, the volume of international appearances. This this particular group have over... 12, go on to have 1,200 international appearances as a collective. That's an average of 77 per player. I mean, that's a pretty good international career. The average age, which we haven't even touched on, was one of the youngest ever, if not the youngest ever, which is 23.4, um, which is incredible to win the Champions League. They have a total, combined total, of over 35 Champions League finals that they've played in as a collective, which, again, is a, you know is an average of, you know, two per player, which is pretty easy when you think that the team got to the final twice, but it wasn't always the same personnel. And I mean, this is incredible. Total honours in terms of the the trophies these guys have won. It averages out at 15 trophies, 15 titles of a cup or a super cup or a league title or a Champions League title. 15 titles per player. Edwin van der Sar has 27 titles alone. Uh, he's one of the most decorated footballers in the history of our game, which is incredible. And I'll flavour that with another team in our all-time greatness table. Manchester United, 1998-1999, which we covered. They have an average, that side, of 15 trophies per player. They have a Champions League final average of one. And they have an international caps record of 67. So, I mean, we ranked Manchester United as one of, 98-99 as one of the greatest teams of all time. For me. Ajax, Amsterdam, 94-95, Eclipse, Manchester United. And I think that takes some beating. They are 100% all-time greats. And I would argue one of the greatest football teams has ever played this game. In your list of accomplishments, you actually missed out on um number of uh, meltdowns in international sides in the change rooms at halftime, which I believe Sadoff and Davids would probably hold the record just the two of them. So, I mean, that's well worth mentioning too. I mean, they destroyed a couple of Dutch teams, didn't they? Certainly ruined a couple of Dutch coaches in their time. I mean, my God, the meltdowns those two used to have. I think that's the reason why Seedorf left in the end. He just fell out with um, Van Howe. But we Everyone. haven't even touched on the madness of Louis Van Howe. Um, 
in the final against Milan, I don't know if you've seen it, Marcel Desai nearly takes Yari Littman's head off. His foot's that high. Yep. And, and Van Gaal goes to the touchline to the fourth official in a similar way that he did with Mike Dean when he was Manchester United manager and froze himself to the floor to you know show that the Arsenal player was simulating diving. He actually simulates a karate kick next to the fourth official to showcase how high and how dangerous he fought the kick was. So we've not touched on the madness of this group. We've not touched on the madness of the ringleader. Shane, even aside from madness, where would you, how would you rank this side? Oh, all-time greats. This is one of my favourite teams. I mean, my God, talent everywhere. It's just silly. It, it, it fueled the whole Dutch national team for 15 years. It's just stupid levels of talent. It's ridiculous. Easy, easily, easily, for pure talent, they'd be top 10 teams of all time at all. And the fact that they're almost all Dutch, that's 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 yeah. something you don't get to see much in football these days, is one nationality dominating a team so mm. spectacularly and just based on youth and no transfers. I mean, this is this is this is easily great. This is this is Top category by a country mile to walk in the park. <laughs> I, I can't argue. It's uh, uh, it's clearly all-time great. I mean, uh, Jamie has made a good point, though, uh, by pointing out how much better than they are than the uh, the Man United side we put in earlier, which is giving me some food for thought for our promotion relegation special uh, at the end of the season oh. where we might decide to demote a team. You gave me a bit of an idea and a thought on that one, Jamie. I might need We might need to revisit the Man United uh, treble winners. Don't forget, we've got Swindon Town in the mix who could find themselves getting an un- unpredictable promotion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know where this goes. Undoubtedly mad, undoubtedly geniuses. Louis van Gaal's Ajax, all-time greats. That's all we have time for. Shane, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute joy. An actual team of greats this time. Slightly disappointing that they're absolutely brilliant. <laughs> there was a lack of controversy. We'll need to rectify that the next time I'm on. Yeah, definitely so. Uh, Jamie, thank you again as ever. My pleasure. Shane, there's a whole bag of football team greats with scandal absolutely dripping from them that we can bring into uh, a future episode and get your get your uh, your enthusiasm bubbling at such incredible scandals like burying brown envelopes in people's gardens. Thank you. Less talent, more Winston Bogard, please. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely so. Okay, so that's all we have time for this week. Um, as a reminder, you can see details of all the teams we've covered and our somewhat erratic rankings on our revamped website, thegreatestteam.co. And if you enjoyed the podcast, uh, please like us, review us, subscribe, tell a friend. Uh, we'd love more people to, as many people as possible, to listen to this and uh, join the debate. Next week, we're going across the pond back to the glory days of the North American Soccer League uh, with the incredible and slightly lost story of the Rochester Lancers. So we'll see you then. 